Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show today, so we're going to get right at it. Later on in the show, we're going to meet musician Samantha Fish. Her latest album, Faster, mixes and matches everything from blues and rock and country to funk, bluegrass, ballads, pop, contemporary R&B, and even some hip-hop into one entertaining record, which is available now wherever you buy fine music. First, though, we're going to get to know Hilary Brown, author of a new book called War Tourist. It's available now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. In a career that spanned almost four decades, she was ABC's first female foreign correspondent and reported from every continent except Antarctica. TVO's The Agenda called her Canada's best ever foreign correspondent. She was one of the last correspondents to be lifted by helicopter from the roof of the American Embassy in Saigon in 1975 during the communist takeover of South Vietnam. One of her ABC reports later appeared in the movie The Deer Hunter in what Brown calls her 15 seconds of fame. She has interviewed everyone from Condoleezza Rice and the Shah of Iran to Sidney Poitier, Laurence Olivier, and John le Carre. She retired from what she calls the best job in the world in 2009 and now has documented her fascinating life in a new memoir called War Tourist. Let's get to know Hillary Brown. The book is called War Tourist. Uh, and you write in the book that foreign correspondents are like war tourists in flak jackets. Uh, they document human misery and then move on. I wonder how difficult it is to move on from some of these. And it is inevitable. You're human. You're going to carry some of this with you. It's true. You know, you you move on, but you, you know, because it's your job to move on to the next story, to whatever you have to do. But you do carry with you this emotional baggage which is compassion and also guilt. And a lot of us feel that way. And so we try to, you know, help people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, usually the victims of war or of conflict or revolution or whatever, you try to help them if you can. And th that's one of my themes in this book. And, and I, with guilt you, comes atonement. And then you start looking for atonement. And for me, my biggest act of atonement was, uh, sponsoring a, a family of Vietnamese boat people from a camp in Hong Kong to Canada. Why? Because I covered the fall of Saigon and as, as I described in the book, I, I, I left behind a, a, a translator, my translator who came to the Caravelle Hotel where I was staying with his family on the day of the evacuation, that panic-stricken day, begging me to take him and his family to get them out of, of Saigon. And I said, I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And I just will never forget the look of total despair in his eyes. These Americans and their Vietnamese dependents are terrified of what the communists will do to them and their children if they take Saigon, because they've all worked for the Americans at one time or another, or so they claim. Now they're using their American connection, however tenuous, to try to qualify for the U.S. airlift. Some of them make it. Most of them don't. The lucky ones are usually the children. Hillary Brown, ABC News, Saigon. And I kind of lived with that until, for 15 years, until I'm anchoring the TV news program in Toronto, CBC at 6, and I get this call from a group called the Mountain Fund to save the boat people. Would I join? And of course I said, yes, 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 I'll join. What can I do? Anything. And that's how I ended up going to Hong Kong. Uh, um, I, I 
I, I um, had a set of sponsorship papers and I went into all the camps in Hong Kong and found a family similar to the ones that I left behind in Saigon, you know, in, in April 1975. And I did a whole documentary about this, you know, tracing my background as a foreign correspondent and profiling this family. One year to the day that this documentary, it was a documentary, was broadcast, they got into Canada. And I was there at the airport. And honestly, Richard, I was so excited. I had a great big bunch of flowers in my, in my hand. And people said I looked like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> because, you know, I'm almost six feet in shoes. But it was really, I mean, that was my atonement. And that was the most wonderful feeling for me. It, it really, really was. And I keep in touch with them. The youngest one has, has now has a PhD from master. How about that? My hope with that documentary was that it would go on the network and maybe, you know, maybe that family would have got out and maybe they'd see it and maybe they'd phone me up and say, it's okay, Hillary, you're forgiven. Yeah. We got out and we're running a restaurant, you know, but that, that didn't happen. But I did have another family who did extremely well. And I was, you know, really kind of proud of that. When you look at the width and breadth of your career and all the conflicts that you have covered and all the things that you have done. And then you read the first part of this book. I would not have read that and then expected the the rest of your career to follow after that. What was the thing? Was it getting the job with the CBC after the BBC had said, no, you don't know how a microphone works. You have to go across the street to the CBC. Was that what started it all and gave you this passion for that kind of storytelling? I think, you know, it was, uh, first of all, um, living abroad as, as a teenager. My father was a scientist. He was transferred to the World Health Organization out of Geneva, and he would take us on trips to Europe, which was then, I mean, Western Europe wasn't, there was no mass tourism there. Right. Um, every single holiday, we'd go somewhere. And that just gave me a great uh, taste for, um, you know, abroad, how other people live. You know, the excitement, the glamour, the, 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 the culture, the color, everything. I, I loved that. And also, there, there were times during those, those trips, and I describe it in the book, where you know, we're, we're driving on roads that are under construction, going along cliffs. And you know, I think we came fairly close to buying it, as they say, on occasion. But to me, that was so exciting. You, know, you're, you're never, you never feel more alive when you think you may soon be dead. You know, I just got that feeling, I guess, early on. You're listening to my interview with Hillary Brown, author of War Tourist, available now wherever fine books are sold. And then, I mean, I loved writing and I, I was interested in, in the world outside. What's going mm -hmm. on? And especially, um, I suppose, in a sense, the bad news, man's inhumanity to man. It, it, it was riveting. And, and what, what that does to people and then how people overcome the, the dreadful suffering. Well, and your career coincides with a different way of covering the news. Uh, by the time that you were a foreign correspondent, you're at the fall of Saigon. Things have changed. Things are much different. Um, tell me a little bit about the learning curve involved in that. Well, yeah, you are on a, on a very steep learning curve. And of course, you practice um, what I call the Blanche Dubois method. You rely on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> and of course, you know, in, a, in, a, in the news business, yeah, there are lots of strangers around. And a lot of them are uh, correspondents, uh, you know, people in the business who mm -hmm. worked in the business much longer than you. So, you know, I, I had very early on in my career, I did... Um, 
uh, in Pakistan, actually, where I, I enterprised myself into a war in 1971, knowing absolutely nothing. All I had was a tape recorder. And I met a BBC correspondent among the, all the others called John Beerman. And he, uh, you know, he just taught me everything, everything, almost everything I know. So that's probably why I ended up marrying him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does, I mean, mentoring, I guess, is very important. I would suggest, though, that there is no amount of mentoring that would be effective unless you had a certain facility for the kind of work that you're going to do. It seems like an extraordinarily dangerous job. Now, I know there are some safeguards and and things, but you must have had a, a certain sense of burning in the pit of your stomach a good deal of the time that you were away. Well, you know, Richard, the funny thing is you don't. Now, that may be. You know, people used to say Hillary Brown doesn't know the meaning of fear. That's one of the many words she doesn't know the meaning of. I mean, you know, you you ignorance is bliss a lot right. of the time. And I think right. that, you know, that was certainly my true in my case. But the other thing is that you 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 your mindset, you're thinking about you know, your your wish to document what's happening. Mm-hmm. And 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 um wanting to beat the competition, of course, it's very competitive, and wanting to please your masters in New York and wanting to, you know, tell that story and to have it, you know, on the air. And that's what's going through your mind. Not that, oh, maybe that guy up there is actually aiming at me. No, that doesn't, that's not going through your mind very often. Hmm. I, I mean, I'd say the only, the only uh, situation which you are totally terrified is in a fanatical, usually all male Islamic mob. That is very frightening. And as I described in my book, I, I think that was one of the times that I think came very close to getting killed. What was going through your mind? Is it just as simple as this is it? This is how it ends? No, it isn't. That isn't what goes through your mind in this case. And it was, I was uh, covering a, what was sort of a mini, um, a mini ins- insurrection in Tabriz around during the Islamic revolution where anything that moved, we would cover. We go plowing into the crowd. I always felt as a matter of principle, I would not ask my crew to go somewhere where I would not go. So I'd go in with them. And I mean, within a nanosecond, I was, we were surrounded by this mob. And in another nanosecond, I was separated completely from the crew. And what I, what I remember thinking is, how could you have been so stupid? How could you have misread this crowd, the mood of this crowd? You used to live in Iran. What, what's the matter with you? And then I, I'd just given birth to my son, Jonathan. It was my first assignment after his birth. And I'm, how could I how could I do this to him? So no, it was all self-recrimination. It was an overwhelming feeling. That, and I guess, you know, you get this instinct for survival. And mine was, I, rem- I knew a bit of Farsi, not very much, but I knew all these elaborate expressions of, uh, you know, by your leave, sir, befarmaid, hahesh mekanam, I beg you. And this ca- all came tumbling out of me. And just as the mob closed in on me, someone decided to give me a break and they let me out, let me out. One person let me out, then the other, then the other, and I got out. So, um, so what, what, what's the answer to your question? It was a mixture of guilt, self-recrimination, and raw survival instinct. Yeah. You're listening to my interview with Hilary Brown, author of the memoir, War Tourist, available now wherever fine books are sold. Jumping back a few years from before you were a war correspondent, you talk about a Svengali University 
professor who seduced you when you were 18 years old. There's a matter of factness about the way you write about those events in your life. Uh, is that from years spent in journalism or was that always there a, a way to compartmentalize the various aspects of your life? Um, no, I think I, I wasn't, uh, um, I, at the time I was sort of deeply emotionally uh, touched by this man, but I was also terrified. And so again, maybe it's a survival instinct. I just managed to get away from him and out of his mm -hmm. orbit. So having done that, yeah, then I do maybe compartmentalize. And then, you know, as I went on in my, my life, my career, I pretty much forgot about him. Well, being the only woman in a, most of the newsrooms, being probably one of the very few women as a, a war correspondent, must have presented issues along these lines today that probably weren't discussed in those days. Well, you know, Richard, I, I was never sexually harassed ever. Mm -hmm in the course of my career. Uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm, as I said, about six feet in shoes and they're scared I'd deck them. I don't know, <laughs> but I never was. I was verbally harassed mm. and verbally abused. And that's, you know, traumatic in itself because usually they select the time that you're about to go on the air live, you know, to, la to launch the insults. But uh, I, I, that, I never had that experience. And I'll tell you, I mean, I would say, by and large, being a female in a man's world, which is what it was like when I started, has a lot of advantages, many more advantages and disadvantages. You know, you're the, you could catch the eye of the colonel or the air commodore. You know, you would get the attention. And, you know, we're all, all after attention. You need the attention of people who can help you. So I never found it to be um, a, a, a disadvantage at all or a problem. No. When you became uh, uh, an anchor for CBC, and I, I love uh, this, you describe it in the book as death by hairspray. You hated it. And ABC News Brief, brought to you by Squeak Shampoo. Now from New York, Hillary Brown. Good afternoon. Well, a lot of the time, yeah, I did kind of hate it. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, actually, anchors, I remember one anchor who was Perry Reasoner. He used to say, you know, if, you, if you've been in the field, and then you end up at, at the anchor desk. You get very grumpy very quickly because you're desperate to be out there, you know, where the journalists are. Right. Uh, because our program, the CBC at Six, had, it had a, had a you know, local and then national and international sort of component. So we, we did have lots of foreign stories. So, you know, I was always desperate to be there. And, and you, you didn't really, we, we used to do interviews, short, short, short interviews but not, not really enough to actually cover any kind of territory. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I did do some reports. I did long form reports that I, many of which I was, uh, I was really quite proud of. Yes, well, I do. And, and um, you know, as, as I, I had a long and very happy marriage with John Beerman, 35 years, and he died in 2006. And I went on working for ABC, but then in 2010, I met this incredibly attractive six foot three inch, uh, blue-eyed Canadian businessman, pilot, philanthropist, adventurer, who keeps me in a constant state of excitement and fear, basically, <laughs> flying me around the world all the time, doing pseudo-extreme sports for which I have no ability whatsoever. So, yeah, I mean, that, that wanderlust is, is, is satisfied. What uh, perspective on life does being a foreign news correspondent give you? 
I'd say it uh, a number of perspectives. I mean, you, you end up feeling immensely grateful for, you know, your, for, for the kind of life you have. Very grateful that you are living in a, in a Western democracy, mm-hmm. that you are a member of the middle class, that you have uh, mobility and education and opportunities still, that your children have opportunities. That, that is very much what you feel. You feel incredibly lucky. I mean, you look at, we now have 88 million refugees around the world. Uh, it's, it's, and you, you, you can see that, 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 that they're going to remain refugees, so many of them for, for decades probably. So good luck. I, I feel immensely lucky, immensely lucky. And I try to inculcate this to my son and to my friends. You know, don't, don't complain about life here. Don't, don't complain, not for a minute. This is Hilary Brown. Find her book, War Tourist, wherever fine books are sold. And then, I mean, the other thing is that, that it, you know, being a foreign correspondent gives you access to sometimes famous people. I mean, for example, John le Carre, who I interviewed and became a great friend, and he became godfather to my son. And, you know, we knew each other for, for years. And, mm-hmm. and he's probably the most interesting, amusing, mesmerizing, generous, charming man I've ever met, that kind of thing. Or, or you know, the, the you, access to, to people of power, people in power. You, you learn not to have, it's important not to have too much, not to have fear of them. You maybe have respect for them, maybe not but not to fear them. I mean, for example, the Shah of Iran, who I interviewed in 1975, <laughs> it was the Shah of Iran who, after I'd peppered him with questions about human rights violations, saying, you know, I have to ask, I have to ask you these questions, your majesty, you may not like it, but I see that Michael Wallace, Mike Wallace of CBS 60 Minutes was asking questions on the same lines. He said, Mike Wallace was a baby next to you and then walked out of the interview. <laughs> what that's, a compliment. That's a clip for the sizzle reel right there. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. And I mean, even earlier on when I was just starting out and I was in, in uh, anchoring a morning radio program in uh, CBC Montreal, you know, public affairs program. And I got to know Leonard, Leonard Cohen who was you know, then a big personality in, in Montreal. And uh, you know, he's friendly as a puppet then, he really was. And one, one evening he came, he came around with a guitar and he said in that you know, deep voice, I wanna, I wanna be a vocalist. And, and then he started strummed up, started strumming up and he started playing da 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 da. You may recognize that's Suzanne by the yeah, river. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful lyrics, but that melody, that, that 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 voice, that gravel voice, and I thought, oh, Leonard, stick to poetry. You'll never be a vocalist. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't tell him that. But you can see what a great talent agent I would have become. <laughs> <laughs> when you are writing a book like War Tourist, it must feel a little different. I guess reporting on yourself. I guess essentially you're reporting on yourself. Well, first of all, you think, oh God, I can't possibly write. 125,000 words. I could, I, I've spent my life writing 500 words, or maybe if it's a documentary, 2,000 words, but can I really do this? But no, once you start, and you obviously you do an outline, I found it quite easy to write. It took me about um, 
18 months to, to write it. And, and, and the internet, of course, was enormously healthy, be, uh, helpful because you can check things, you know, check dates, check this, check that. And then after I, I'd written it, I hired a very good editor. She had worked for Margaret Atwood and she did a fact check, line check and um, copy edit. Right. You know? So, but, but, but I, I, the whole business of actually getting it published, I, I found to be absolutely excruciating. Deadlines mean nothing to publishers. For someone who is used to the action, uh, <laughs> book publishing is like uh, going back to the prehistoric days. They think in terms of calendars, not in terms of, yes. of, of moving quickly. Yeah, or decades, or I don't know what. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's never any apology. No, no, no. So I, I this, this book is now available on Amazon mm-hmm. and on Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Hillary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about your book. Well, it was delightful, Richard. You can find Hilary Brown's book, War Tourist, wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Samantha Fish. She's a guitar player, a songwriter, and singer voted by GuitarWorld.com as one of the 10 best blues guitarists in the world today. Now, that's a little misleading, though, because in a career that spans over 10 years, the Kansas City, Missouri musician's music has featured multiple genres, including blues, but also rock, country, funk, bluegrass, and ballads. Her latest album, Faster, which is available now wherever you buy fine records, adds a new twist or two. On the new record, she explores new ground, adding in elements of pop, contemporary R&B, and hip-hop into the music. Let's hear a sample of the title track from Faster. Come on, right here. I'm gonna be a little forward. So shy, like dives. Why you sitting in the corner? I'll be nice, I won't bite. Well, can you come a little closer? It's alright, I just might be the type I wanna be a little forward. Samantha Fish is an artist without limits, and she joins me via Zoom from her home in New Orleans. How did being off the road because of COVID influence this new record? You know, I mean, this is the first time I've been in that environment where I was completely tourless in a way um, while writing. Usually I write um, between tours, between shows, in the hotel room. You know, we do a lot of writing um flying places and i'll do collaborations with people so this was like you know the first time that i'd really experienced this sort of shut down writing from my house kind of an experience and you know i i I don't want to like say that it was all uh roses the entire time because there were some days where it's it's really hard to find inspiration in the same Mm -hmm. four walls but it was nice to be able to completely solely focus on that um yeah so i it was a I'd say that was probably the biggest change for me just in my approach. And the songs uh, have a different feel to them on this record than they do on uh, your last records. Do you think that's because you were sitting around writing in a different kind of environment? Yeah. And also I I kind of credit that to, you know, I, I definitely evolve album to album and I had, I had been kind of leaning towards this, you know, something a little more modern, something a little more synth heavy, exploring some just different genres that I hadn't quite explored on my past records. And, 
and meeting Martin and working with Martin and his experience in, you know, more of a mainstream pop rock world, mm -hmm. you know, I'd say that definitely helped me achieve, you know, going for what I wanted to go for. And, and, and yeah, so there was, there's a few different factors that I think really helped shape this album and make it a standalone, but yet a part of my catalog that's married into everything, you know? Yeah. It still sounds like you. It just feels a little different and it feels like the, I, I don't know if evolution is exactly the right word, but the evolution of an artist, someone who's uh, reaching out and uh, sort of absorbing everything around them and coming up with something new and interesting. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's the goal. You know, I want, I, I got a lot to say. I talk a lot. I have a lot to say musically, and, <laughs> um, you know, so it's nice that I, I'm, afforded this opportunity, you know, and I've got a great team that allows me to take chances creatively and to, you know, find, find different ways of saying, you know, saying what I want to say musically. I, I, I appreciate it though. I mean, I, I'm glad that it feels different because it should, you know, it should. Mm -hmm. The record uh, does have this in common, I think, with uh, your past records is that you can kind of feel the live energy in the recording uh, what were the sessions for this album like well this the, you know martin's approach to production is a little different than anything I, i've encountered thus far um you know normally i would walk into the studio with a handful of acoustic songs and then we'd kind of you know i'd send them to the band and we'd all kind of get ideas before we walked in but you know martin really like painstakingly uh when I say painstaking, I, it, it's, it was just new for me, but like he right. really, we spent a lot of time before we ever stepped foot inside the studio huh. and, and really constructed like, okay, this is how these songs are going to go. And in the past, I think that has always scared me because I've been fearful that it wouldn't feel organic or something, you know? And, and honestly, I was totally shocked because it, it was the exact opposite. It all felt really, really organic we just all the stress had kind of melted away before because normally I'd be a hot mess walking into studio day one <laughs> just like a ball of nerves and like uncertainty and you know I walked in feeling really confident because it was like we kind of had we we definitely knew where we what we were doing and you're listening to my interview with Samantha Fish find her album faster wherever you legally download or buy music you know and, and it left all this room to just have fun and to improvise and you know we still recorded in the same fashion that I'm used to recording and I mean just uh guitar uh bass and drums all live we were all in the same room together me josh and diego and we just you know we cut these songs and it was you know i knew how it was gonna go and it was exciting and um you know just really fun i'd say that was a little different than anything i'd done before in the past you know but i learned a lot from from approaching it in that way I think there's a confidence that comes with having made a number of records, having played so many shows, but I would imagine that some of the uh, other more, um, the, the, the way that you used to make records, uh, you would road test the songs a little bit, see how a crowd would respond to them, you know, before you took them into the studio. And I would imagine that there wasn't the chance uh, to do that with this record. So it, it's all about confidence and, and, and perhaps feeling differently about the material than you had before. 
Absolutely. You know, and to be honest with you, I stopped road testing a long time ago just because I'd had some experience where you road test it so much with the band that it becomes something very specific live. And then when you go into record it, for whatever reason, it's like it sounds it's just different. And so now you've got the you've got this um, you you open up this dialogue of like, oh, well, I like the live version way better than I like the studio version. So I as the years have gone on, I kind of I like and I also like to keep things close, close just because I want to surprise people and I want them to hear these songs as they kind of unfold now but um you know no I I, as far as this particular set of songs I mean this all happened after the shutdown I mean I started I started working on these when I realized I wasn't going anywhere for a very long time and yeah nobody heard them nobody heard them and I I really I didn't play the record for that many people either normally I'd be passing this around and like you know sending it to my grandma my aunt (laughs) everybody and and I, I didn't do that this time just I, you know, I think, I think that disconnect socially had happened a little bit with the pandemic. You know, I got used to not seeing and interacting so much, but I also just, I don't know. I felt like really wanted to keep this one under wraps and a surprise because it feels really special. I mean, they all feel really special to me, but right now in this moment in time, this one feels really special. You say you send it around to people and you mentioned your grandmother and people are, are you from a musical family? Everybody sings in church or sings. My dad is a guitar player. A lot of my my family members play and uh, family friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up around music for sure. And with a guitar in your hand, perhaps. Um, I didn't pick that up till I was about fifteen. Really? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was um, it, it was something kind of you know, uh, I guess a little later for me. But I'm I'm sort of glad that I came to find that a little later because I I came to it on my own. Um, and you know, in the past, like when I was a little kid, I was, you know, I played violin and that felt more like a chore Mm -hmm. and, you know, required a lot of discipline And I just, you know, some kids have it, some kids don't. So I always encourage parents, let them find it, you know, on, on their own. And then they'll really love it if it doesn't feel like, I mean, you you still got to work at it, but I, I think you have to develop a relationship and really enjoy it. So I'm glad I found it a little later in life. Although I would love to be one of those kids who was like six years old and a prodigy. <laughs> I, I just don't know if I have the temperament for that. Was it right, listening to records like the Rolling Stone Sticky Fingers, which I understand is a favorite of yours, that kind of pushed you towards playing guitar because it's such a, a, a great guitar album? Absolutely. That's one of my favorite records. Just, yeah. I don't know, every song on that is great. Exile on Main Street's another great Stones album that yeah. I feel is really one of my favorites, but I was a big Tom Petty fan. So, you know, I really, really like Mike Campbell solos and, you know, just kind of this, I, I loved classic rock and, and I kind of, I came to realize that classic rock was so heavily influenced by blues music along the way that I became a big fan of the blues. And then you find this improvisational factor within that. It, it's just really, um, it's really, it's all so tied together, you know? Well, I think probably also being in Kansas City shaped your playing. Uh, it it strikes me with uh, in, in a city with such a long history of jazz and blues uh, that you're kind of immersed in it, yeah, regardless absolutely. of whether you're you're you know interested or not. It's going to be there. Well, yeah. I mean, as a young player, um, you know, and the things that I was influenced by and what I was learning, it was like the very next step was okay. You need to go and you know hit up one of these open mic nights or open jams and just sit in and you know hone your skills like figure out how to improvise and say something with the instrument find your voice and Kansas City has a really long 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 history of jazz and blues and 
you know, I was nowhere near, <laughs> like I was, like, I, I was nowhere near the skill level it takes to like sit in on some of those jams, but mm. I was, you know, Kansas city is such an encouraging scene and they were really incredibly, you know, just gracious to me as a young person coming and wanting to learn to play the guitar. And, you know, yeah, it, it's, you can't help but be kind of like pulled into that and soak it in. You have said in another interview that I read, the blues is the contributing factor to every single type of modern American music. Every single person that I looked up to as a guitar player, a band, everything they learned was from the blues. What did the blues and playing the blues teach you? Um, you know, there's, I, I mean, it's, it's everything, you know, if it's, like you can find it just even in the swagger and the attitude, um, mm. in, in the music. And, and it's, there's this, there's this nature to, to blues that I feel it's like, you know, I mean, what are they talking about? There's ta there's, there's the themes are, you know, it's sex, it's, it's rock and roll. It's, it's like, it's in everything, you know? So, so for me, it's just, it's this pulsing heartbeat through all of modern music. You know, you find, for, to me, I find, um, you ask what it is to me um, when I play, you know, it's, it's kind of just in my fingers now in, in my own way, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and it, because it's something I came up with because the players that I was, you know, uh, imitating before I started having my own kind of vocalization with the guitar, you know, it's about, I, I would, I would try and like pick out Phoebe King's vibrato or, right. you know, just because they were really truly saying something with their instrument. It was, it's like a, it's its own voice, you know, so I, I don't know, to me, it was just about finding my identity and my voice and, and learning how to play from listening to these great guitar players and how they could really truly emote. And there's something very raw and visceral about, you know, about the improvisation and playing of guitar and, and the vocalization, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all about passion. It's, you know, so that, that's what it is to me. You know, it's, it's about passion. It's about um, the delivery. And, you know, I, I just, I feel like it's, it's alive in so many forms of music today. And one of the things that I think about your playing and when I, when I think of other guitar players that I really love to listen to is that, you know, when not to play as much as knowing when to play. And I think that's such a, a, a distinction um, that makes uh, the, the listener more involved, your, your, caught up in the spaces between the notes almost. And that might sound a little, you know, uh, over the top, but I feel it when I listen to a great guitar solo, it's not just the notes, it's the notes that aren't there as well. And the space between them that really uh, makes something uh, stand out for me. Absolutely. You know, that was, that's something that I think is one of the hardest things to, to grab onto as a young guitar player, at least it was difficult for me. Um, you know, just knowing when not to be like, you know, yeah. hitting notes, but it makes all the sense in the world because when you talk to somebody, say you're having a, a conversation, a meaningful one, everybody's take, you know, people don't just talk like this at random speed the entire time, you know, <laughs> without any breaks, they take pauses, they take breaths because that's very human. So mm -hmm. you, if you look at guitar playing like that, I mean, you, you want it to be an extension of your voice. People take breaths. There's pauses. It's, it's like that's where the drama is. If you've ever heard somebody give a great speech, like a great orator, yeah. there's pauses. And they're so important. They're so important because that's the drama. <laughs> and, and, and that's the humanity in it, too. So, I mean, I, I find that it's a really important thing. But, um, 
it, you know, I trust me, I don't always remember to do it. I have to, I have to stop <laughs> all the time and go, okay, Samantha, take a breath, take a breath. <laughs> uh, you also produce other people's albums. You've got your own records coming out, of course. Uh, you tour when the pandemic isn't happening. You write all your own music. I mean, it's it's a busy time. It must be busy for you. Has the pandemic uh, given you time to reassess anything, or are you just itching to get back to do it all again? Um, you know, I do miss it. Um, I, I I missed moving around. I I think I needed I needed a bit of a break. You know, so sometimes you're dealt things and you just kind of, you know, figure it out as you go. I, I really felt like it was a, a good thing for me at the time. But no, I'm, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm, I'm ready to get back out there. <laughs> and will you be playing? Because I've, I've heard these and I love them. Uh, the live versions that you do of songs like Screaming Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You, which is such a cool song. You do War Pigs by Black Sabbath. Uh, will you be adding any more covers into your set? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we I'm always I'm always working on new stuff. Um, you know, as far as what I'm going to be doing, I mean, I've, I've mixed in a lot of covers over the years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like to, I like to sort of throw in something familiar every now and then just because people kind of their ears perk up and it's like, Oh, I know the song, but then you have your own spin to it. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. It, it's good every once in a while to give them something they know. Absolutely. Samantha, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with me today. Oh, absolutely. I really appreciate it. And, uh, hope to come up there and see you soon. That was my conversation with Samantha Fish. Find her album faster wherever you buy fine records. It really adds a twist or two to the kind of blues music that she's known for. Keep in mind, GuitarWorld.com called her one of the 10 best blues guitarists in the world today. Well, she builds on that and takes it to a completely new place. Album's called Faster. Check it out. Big thanks to Samantha Fish. Also, a big thanks to Hilary Brown. Her book, War Tourist, gives you a look inside what it's like to travel to some of the most dangerous places on earth and tell the story for the rest of us back at home. You can find the book wherever you buy fine books. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.